Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will finish the chapter this morning, verses 6 through 13, regarding immorality in the church, sexual sin in the church. And this morning, the uh, title is Immorality Must Be Judged. Immorality Must Be Judged. In verses 1 and 2, one of the first things the Corinthians needed to see was the need for discipline. The need for discipline. It seems like they reasoned or played down the immorality that was going on in the church right in front of their eyes. They didn't seem to see that there was a need for discipline. And the first thing Paul wanted to do was show them that immorality was a serious, serious sin and it shouldn't be tolerated. And then in verses 2 through 5, Paul makes it clear what discipline should have been taken when the man refused to repent and to stop what he was doing. Because what he was doing was clearly immorality. And he should have been excommunicated as removed from the body, according to verse 2. Well, let's pick up now where we left off with verses 6 through 8. And Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here Paul tells them why. They should discipline. You know, sometimes discipline has to be harsh. Because if not, it it can lead to worse things. Sin is like a spiritual infection in the body. And it won't be long before it spreads if it's not treated properly. And unless it's removed, the infection will spread until the whole fellowship is sick. David said in Psalm 101.8, Dealing with leadership. David spoke about the things that he would be looking for in those that would serve in his administrations and the things that he would stop, the things that he wouldn't allow. And he said in Psalm 101.8, he said, early, and that's the key word, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. He says, the moment I saw an evildoer in my kingdom, in my fellowship, he said, in my administration, they're gone. He wouldn't let it, he wouldn't let them hang around. He got rid of any evildoers immediately. And that's, that's what you do with sin. The Corinthians couldn't deal with that truth. And even though they were taught this truth way before it happened, because their pride caused them to be negligent when it came to discipline. And Paul tells them here, you're in verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good in this situation. He says, look what it's done. Because you still love the wisdom of men, and you love to be recognized by men, and you love the things of this world, it has totally blinded you to the obvious sin in your midst that will destroy your church if you don't get rid of it. He said in verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
That was the condition that the Corinthian church was in. The believers in the church had been enriched in Christ with, with, with gifts. They had all of the gifts. They didn't lack in the gifts. They had, you know, gifts of, of eloquence. They had every kind of knowledge. And Paul said, this shows that what I told you about Christ is true and that they had every gift that they needed. But they were still conceited. They, had, they, they were puffed up. They were big-headed and immoral because they tolerated sin. Especially a sin that the pagans even condemned and wouldn't have anything to do with in their own society. Now, a church may be big. It may have a big congregation. It may have an exciting Sunday school uh, uh, curriculum. An active team that goes out and evangelizes. Uh, a team that goes out and visits. You know, a, a good counseling uh, uh, committee or, or group. And it might have all kinds of other great ministries, but that does not protect or justify a church that's not faithful when it comes to dealing with sin. And when a church, especially a big church, knowingly tolerates sin and doesn't deal with it, it's headed for more problems, bigger problems. In the Old Testament, when, when bread was about to be baked, a small piece of dough was taken from the loaf and it was saved. That little leaven or yeast would then be allowed to ferment in water and then it would be uh, mixed later on with the next batch of fresh dough to make it rise. The local church is like the whole lump of dough. If sin is allowed, then it will affect the whole church just like leaven spreads throughout a whole lump of dough. Sin's nature is to ferment, to corrupt, and to spread. Leaven to the Jews usually represented something bad from the past brought into the present. And when the Hebrews were getting ready to leave Egypt, they were commanded to sprinkle lamb's blood on the doorposts and make bread without yeast because they didn't have time for it to rise. Also, bread represented an essential of life. Bread was a daily, a daily food. It was a daily part of the people's diet. It was an essential of life. And the Passover and the Exodus expressed deliverance from the old life, the old life they had in Egypt, entering into the new life, into the promised land. The leaven represented the old life, Egypt, the way of the world, which was totally to be totally left behind. So after leaving Egypt while marching through the wilderness and during every Passover celebration afterwards, the Lord commanded, no leavened bread shall be eaten it shall not even be seen among you. All leaven had to be thrown away. So in the same way, Christians are to be separated from the old life. We're not to bring any of the old life with us into the new life. We are to get rid of the old life, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, unleavened. As Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new lump. Old things have passed away. The old life has passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our Passover. And he was sacrificed for us. Verse 7 tells us here, Paul said. He said, purge out. That means, the word purge out means to purge or to cleanse thoroughly. Emphasizing the completeness of cleansing. 
So the Passover in Egypt symbolizes Christ's sacrifice. Christ's perfect Passover lamb. And putting his blood over us totally saves us from the control of sin and and God's judgment. We're also to remove everything from the old life that would spoil and affect the new life. You know, it's the picture of of Israel crossing the, 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 the Red Sea. You know, they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. And once they got across, that sea closed up. A picture of them to never go back that way again. The old life was to be over and done with. And that's what happens to the believer. Or should be with the believer. That old life. Nothing from the past. Nothing from the behind. uh, Our behind life should ever be brought into the new life. That it affects the new life. Again, like Israel who was set free from Egypt. As a result of the Passover, they were to make a clean break with the oppressor. So is the believer. We are to be totally separated from our old life with its sinful attitudes, its sinful morals, and its sinful habits. Jesus died to free us from those things. Jesus died to free us from being slaves to sin. Anything that makes us a slave to sin. And he saved us to make us slaves of righteousness. Which is the only true freedom, real freedom. The best protection from sin for us, that is for Christians, is simply focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And then Paul's final point here in these verses is that we're to continue to keep the feast. Not with the old leaven. Nor with the leaven, of, he said in verse 8, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is now talking about how the believer is to walk after he's been saved. Sincerity never saved anyone. We can can be as sincere as we want and and saying, you know, I'm going to start a new life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to change this and and I'm going to do this. It's it's all going to be new. And we can be sincere as ever. But you know what? Sincerity never saved anyone. If you are truly a child of God, you will be sincere. The world today needs to see authenticity. They want to see genuineness. They want to see truth among Christians. Paul says, let's have sincerity and truth in the church in Corinth. That's what he's asking for. The Corinthian church wasn't being sincere and it wasn't being true. There was offensive immorality right in the midst of their congregation and they thought they could get away with it and just go about church business like it didn't exist. They were, they were pretending to tell uh, the truth and they were pretending to live the truth when they really weren't. And the Old Testament Passover was celebrated just once a year to remind them about or remind them of their deliverance from Egypt, the old life. The Christian celebration should be continuous every day. Every day celebrating our new life in Christ. Every thought, every plan, every intention should be under Jesus' control. Lord, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to go there? Is what I'm thinking from you. 
The perfect unleavened bread he desires us to eat is that of sincerity and truth. The word sincerity here means the attitude of true honesty and integrity that results from the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ. Sincerity and truth are words that speak of purity. The purity of the cleansed new life in Christ and the new life that and in the new life there's no place for leaven. The impurity of malice and wickedness. The word malice speaks of an evil personality or attitude. Wickedness is the behavior that shows that evil attitude. We're called to celebrate our Passover in Christ. And not just once a year, but constantly. With a constant life that's devoted to purity and rejecting sin. Discipline in the church helps to do this. How? By removing uncleanness that will infect and corrupt the church. It keeps the church from being filled with evil. Now in verses 9 through 13, Paul's going to tell us about the degree of discipline. Beginning with verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually, the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So again, here Paul's going to speak about the degree of discipline. The discipline that God commands his church to take here against the unrepentant is a certain kind of discipline. And it should be carried out without any, or I should say, within limits. It should be carried out within limits. So the, these verses, verses 9 through 13, they point to some kinds of offenses that need discipline. And give additional explanation on how the discipline is to be carried out. Paul had exhorted them earlier not to keep company with immoral people in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 9. Which literally means, the, the word to keep company literally means to mix up with. Or to keep intimate, close company with. So the church was without excuse for failing to separate the sinning member from the body. They had no excuse. Now the epistle, the one that Paul talked about, was not preserved. This is the only reference to it. But faithful believers are not to keep close company with any, again, any believers who persistently practice, and there's the keyword, practice serious sins like those mentioned here. And if the wrongdoer won't listen to the counsel and the warnings of two or three other believers, and not even the whole church, they are to be put out of the fellowship based on Matthew 18, excommunication. And and what Paul is saying, they shouldn't be allowed to take part in any activities of the church. They're not allowed to partake in worship services, Sunday school, Bible studies, or even social, uh, uh, social events. 
You see, they especially shouldn't be allowed to be in any leadership role. Paul's saying here they are to be totally cut off from the individual and corporate, corporate fellowship with other Christians, even eating together. He says here in verse 11, and, he, and no exceptions are to be made. Even if the unrepented person is a close friend, even a family member, they are to be put out of the, of the congregation if they will not repent and stop this sin. Paul says he's to be isolated from fellow believers so that he or she does not infect the body of Christ with their wickedness. And he's to suffer or she's to suffer the consequences of their sin. And here's the reason behind it. Here's the hope behind it. He said in verse 5, the hope is that the pain of their isolation will lead them to repentance. No church is strong enough to resist contamination from continual sin in its body. Again, it's, it's like our own body. If we have an infection and we don't treat it and we just let it go, it's going to progress in a negative way. And you know, it's going to continue to make us sick, super sick, eventually kill us depending on what it is. But, you know, sin is 100% fatal. And there's only one cure for it, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. It's 100% uh, uh, effective against sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin. The Corinthians had misinterpreted Paul's letter, the earlier letter, uh, about associating with immoral people. Because he said in verse 10 here, he says, I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. He says, those weren't the ones that I was telling you not to hang around with or to have fellowship with, though we don't normally. But he was saying, I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. You know, we'd have to leave this earth to to not be in the presence of, of, you know, the the, uh, sexually immoral of the world. It might have been that the church stopped having contact, any contact with unbelievers instead of with unrepentant believers that Paul said this. But Paul made it clear that it would be impossible to do this that is not, that is not having anything to do with sexually immoral people, you know, uh, with, with unrepentant believers. That's natural for them. It's natural. Paul made it clear that it would be impossible to do this unless you left the earth. We are called to be witnesses to the world. A witness to the world and to share the gospel with the world. Again, that was the great commission that Jesus gave all of us. To go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And how do we do that if we don't communicate with them? If we don't witness to them? So we have to be in the world, but not of it. We have to be in the world. We have to have contact with unsaved people or we could never witness to them. We're in the world, but not of it. When Jesus was praying to the Father for his disciples, Jesus prayed this in John 17, 15. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Being in this world and, and doing what Christ has called us to do, to be witnesses to the world and to, and to share the gospel with the world, you know, we need to pray. And Jesus prayed to the Father to keep us from the evil one. 
that we're not affected by it or, or, or you know, in, contaminated by the evil one or the evil of this world. We are to be blameless. Paul said in Philippians 2.15, we're to be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Think of that. We are to shine like lights in this dark world. God wants us to be in this world. Why? So that we can be salt and light and that we can be his witnesses to it. We are to show the world who God is. That's why Jesus Christ came, to show who God is. And remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we're to reflect that same light. Can we say to people, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But that should be what we should be able to say, because we are taking on the the character of Christ, because he's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's our Master. Now, it's this so-called brother that Paul's dealing with here in the church who's a threat to the the spiritual health of the church. Paul says, this is the one we're not to associate with. Discipline is to be carried out to anyone who says they're a Christian. Anyone calling themselves a Christian is subject to discipline. And Paul makes it clear that excommunication is not limited only to cases of extreme sin like the man living with his stepmother. But he says it should be applied to any professing believer who's an immoral person or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, as he mentions in verse 11. The cause for departing from sinning saints is given. First, he gives the particular of the causes. Fornication, covetousness, idolatry, a reviler, an extortioner. These are, this is, these are reasons for being separated from the body of Christ if it's a continual practice of sin. Now, these are not trivial sins. These are not lightweight, petty things that Paul's talking about here. Because, you see, if we separated from, from the brethren over every sin, hey, none of us would be hanging out together. We wouldn't associate with anybody. Even though true believers receive a new nature, the divine nature, man, that old flesh is always with us. It's always present. It's always wanting to raise its ugly head. It's always wanting to have its own way. It's always wanting to be catered to. It's always telling you, give me what I want. And that old flesh offers the potential for all kinds of sinning. All kinds of sinning. Even those things he would say, oh, I would never do that. And I've heard people say, I can't believe I did that. And I remember telling somebody, yeah, you should, because that's who we are. Sin is deceptive. You don't think you'd do something like that. But that's the nature we have. We have the, we have the potential to do the most heinous things. The believer who refuses to make use of the resourcefulness of his new life, which is the word of God and prayer and fellowship, and he yields or he, she yields to his, their flesh, <clears throat> they will fall into a routine of habitual evil behavior like those mentioned here in verse 11. Can believers develop such patterns of sin as this mentioned by Paul? Yes. Yes, they can. Can a believer drift away from the word of God and from Jesus Christ? Yes, he can. 
The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 2.1 says this, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. There's the warning. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He broke the power of sin so that we don't have to be subject to sin. And it seems hard to believe that a born-again Christian would do these awful deeds mentioned by Paul here. But they, but they do. Great men, remember, like David. And he was guilty of adultery and murder. Just because a person is saved does not make them immune to, to temptation. It doesn't make them immune from doing all that they can to prevent themselves from falling into sinful behavior. But believers who choose to sin will develop sinful patterns in their life if they don't repent. If they don't do anything about it. In verses 6, 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives a serious warning. And also we see it in Galatians 5, 21. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice, there it is, that's the key word, practice. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who make a habit of that, any, any particular sin will not inherit the kingdom of God because ungodly living will keep you out of the kingdom. And then, so that Paul makes himself totally clear, he gives a list of sins that seem to be special temptations to the Corinthians in this chapter. Any of these sins would break a man's fellowship in Christ and would disqualify him as an heir to the kingdom of God. In other words, wrong living excludes men from God's kingdom. And because we're still in these bodies of flesh, sin will sometimes break the pattern of righteousness if you continue in it because it becomes a sinful pattern. That's why, our, that's why there's so many commands and calls to obedience to, to, to church discipline. The Corinthian church had members who practiced all of these sins that Paul mentioned. Can you imagine? An immoral man is the, ma- is the main subject of chapter 5 here. But some were covetous as implied in chapter 10 verse 24. And some were involved in idolatry in chapter 10 verses 21 and 22. And it seems that many of them were revilers or slanders. You know, uh, they, to, to reproach angrily and abusively. Putting down other church members. They had drunkards in chapter 11, verse 21. They had extortioners and swindlers here in verse 6, 8. I'm sorry, in chapter 6, 8. The whole letter reminds us that believers can sin and do sin. And all offenders were to be put out of church if they would not repent, if they wouldn't change. The rest of the believers were to stay away from them in any social setting that gave the idea of acceptance. And you see, that's the thing. It gives the idea when, when, when we fellowship with somebody that is, that is practicing sin. It, it, in, in a sense, we're saying that we accept of their behavior. We accept what they're doing. We're called to stay away from them in, in, so that we don't give the idea of acceptance to what they were doing. And, and we, they, the, the people weren't to even eat with somebody like this. And then Paul says in verse 12, we're not responsible for judging others, but we, but we were to witness uh, uh, to them, but not judge them. We can't discipline them. 
Because it can't change the sin of the unsaved. That's who he's talking about in, in number verse 12, the outsiders. He says, we're not responsible for judging outsiders. That is those outside the church, those that are not saved. We're to witness to them, but we can't judge them. We can't discipline them. Again, because they're, they're not saved. Those who are outside, God judges, verse 13 says. The ones that, are out, that aren't saved, God deals with them. But we do have the responsibility to judge those in the church. Not, not regarding salvation, but behavior of sin. And we have to remove the wicked man from among the body. That's the thing that Paul's talking about here. Now, and that's hard. Discipline is hard. And it's painful. And it's often heartbreaking. And it often you know, it causes you know, problems in the body itself. Because, you know, when, when the leadership has to take that, that position and they have to dis- discipline somebody or I say, hey, you know what? You got to go. People many times don't know the whole situation. They just see the effects of the sin. And, and you get sides. You know, and, and when there's more than one of all, you know, there, there's sides. And then the gossiping starts and the, and the complaining starts about why did you do this to them and not them and all. They don't have any idea what's, what's going on as far as all of, all of, the, um, you know, all of the details. And, and so, again, it can become very difficult, very painful. And, and so we're always to love the offenders. Discipline is not a question of love, but that we should love Jesus and we should love his church and we should love his word even more. Our love for the offenders isn't to be a mushy, sentimental tolerance, but a correcting love. It's to help them. Solomon said in Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. What would you prefer? To have a good friend hurt you by telling you the truth? Or, 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 or somebody that just says, oh, you know, you're okay. That's all right. You're doing good. Don't worry about it. You want a friend who has your best interest at heart. Now, they may, not, they, may not, they may not give you pleasant advice at times. But you know you can trust them and you can know it's for your own good. An enemy might whisper sweet words and send you happily on your way to ruin. And we tend to hear what we want to hear, what we like to hear. Even if an enemy is the only one who will tell us. A friend's advice, no matter how much it hurts, is is a lot better. It's not that everyone in the church has to be perfect, because we're not, and we're not going to be. So it's not that everybody in the church has to be perfect, because that's impossible. But, because everyone falls into sin and has imperfections and falls short, we have flaws, we're defective. That's why we need to come to Jesus Christ and to confess our sins so that he can forgive us our sins and cleanse us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in closing, church discipline is not popular and it's not easy. But it's important and it's necessary. And if it's done properly, God can use it to convict and to restore an erring brother or sister. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, 
it indicates that this man that we're talking about here did repent and he was restored to fellowship. So again, we see the, the soundness and the effectiveness of what is happening here. Because the man did repent and did return to the fellowship. So see that, that God's word, you know, his, that's why we need his discernment. And we need his directions for all things. So again, may we desire to do what God has called us to do and, and, and in the same you know, manner of detail. So that what we do we know is biblical and it's right and it will be effective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your tender mercies, Lord. And Father, help us to be sensitive to offenders, but yet more sensitive to the word of God in Jesus Christ, Lord. So Father, we thank you and and we ask you now to bless our time in communion as Brother Larry uh, leads us in that time. If you don't have a cup and the elements, raise your hand and we'll get one out to you. Everybody have one?